the way we do healthcare in this country is awful. Good people, good intentions, but the way we do it is transactional, it's reactive. So we have a much closer relationship to the consumer and we decided we just want to build a better vision for it to actually change outcomes. Welcome to PJ Solomon's Healthcare Tech Podcast. I'm Ryan Stewart and I lead our healthcare tech and tech-enabled franchise. Today's discussion is going to focus on tech-enabled care delivery in the senior care market with a particular focus on primary care. With me today, I'm thrilled to have Rashika Fernandapool. Rashika is co-founder and CEO of Iora Health, a national tech-enabled primary care practice. Rashika also serves on the staff at Mass General and is on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. I think it'd be good if you wouldn't mind just orienting the audience around the offering, the population you serve, the number of seniors, clinics, how you've scaled. And let's just get everyone level set before we dive you know, deeper into the discussion. What is Iora Health? Sure. So Iora is a, I guess I call it, we're not along a startup, we're sort of growth stage uh, primary care company. The vision is really that the way we do healthcare in this country is awful, right? Good people, good intentions, but the way we do it is transactional, it's reactive. And we decided we just want to build a better vision for it. So we built from scratch new practices. We're pure play value-based care. So we work almost entirely in global risk models. We build practices from scratch that are actually aligned around what we want to do. So we have very robust teams. We have an omni-channel care delivery model. We proactively reach out to people. We've built our own IT platform from scratch to really help us enable this. Uh, and we've been uh, scaling this up. We are about 10 years old. We had a 10th birthday in December. At the moment, to give you a sense of scale, we're We'll cross probably 300 million in revenue this year. We have uh, 47 practices across the country uh, in uh, 10 different markets. Very far from a from a startup, Rashika, but yeah. you're, you're quite <laughs> humble. <laughs> <laughs> On the global cap, subcap risk that you do with the leading MA plans in the country, it's going to be real relevant as we get later and we talk about the the whole DCE program and and you guys contracting directly with the federal government. But today, talk primarily how you work with the Medicare Advantage plans in the country. Virtually all of our revenue comes from Medicare Advantage plans. We work with all the big national guides, Humana, United, Aetna, CVS, uh, et cetera, as well as a small but growing number of local plans. We work uh, in what's called percentage of premium arrangements, where we get essentially as much of the healthcare dollars we can, sort of roughly 85% of premium on average, go up or down, uh, and that's our money. And what we do is we then uh, get patients we, who get attributed to us. They say that we are their primary care doctor. And then we draw down a small primary care cap to pay for our primary care. Um, that's minorly interesting. We don't have to bill fee for service for anything we do, which is great and actually transformational. Then our patients go downstream. And the whole bit here is we're going to double down on the primary care. And through doing that, make people healthier, help them navigate the system better. And we dramatically lower the the percentage of time to go to the hospital or the ER. So healthcare cuts go down and then we get to keep whatever's left from what we get. So it's sort of a global risk model. We think it aligns what we do with what the patient wants, which is actually get healthier and navigate the system. And it means that we can really be creative in how we serve people. What advantage do you have to drive better outcomes by being a care delivery business versus being a care management or care coordination company? almost all of healthcare costs are being driven by chronic disease. 
And chronic disease is all about engagement. Uh, and so we have several huge advantages. And one is we have real clinical data. You know, these are our patients. Number two is we have a real relationship with the patient. Uh, you know, there are these care management companies that are nurses trying to call people on the phone from Idaho. And if they get two or 3% of the people on the phone, they declare success. We get 100% of our people engaged. And then we can actually change care. So if we find something's going wrong, we're their doctor. We can actually, we don't send mother, may I fax this to their doctor and hope that they read it, which they don't. We actually just change the care. So we have a much closer relationship to the consumer, which is what you need to actually change outcomes. Very intriguing to watch your business model. And in particular, with the pandemic over the last year, you've sort of given me permission to do this, but I, I use Iora as the poster child of a business that innovated through the pandemic, through the leveraging of technology and communications, where you were able to shift what was pretty much a hundred percent face-to-face clinic model. Today or post-pandemic, you're about a 50-50 mix between voice, video, virtual chat, and face-to-face, but the face-to-face isn't all in the clinic. It can be over video or telephonic or, or chat. Talk about that transformation that's gone on in your business just here in the last year. Yeah, so like everyone else, you know, we realized when the pandemic hit almost uh, exactly a year ago that we had to change how we do things, right? And I think the thing that really changed, because we didn't have to worry about the stupid rules. We didn't have to worry about the... Um, payment model, right? Because we have global risk. We don't have to worry about billing codes or telemedicine. But for us, what changes? Patients started being much more open to interacting in a different way. So what we've developed is omni-channel care delivery model. So we do an average, Ryan, 19 encounters per patient per year. 19. Um, and again, these are largely seniors. These are older, sicker people. Uh, half of them are asynchronous, which is a chat asynchronous chat, text, video, et cetera. And half of them are synchronous where we're on the we're on at the same time. And of the synchronous, about 10, four are by video, four are in person, and two are by scheduled telephone. Right. So it's a really nice omnichannel model. And again, I think the way that the the industry is evolving with their companies that just do chats with people. There are different companies that are doing videos with people. There are practices that make you come in in person. There are maybe home visit companies that'll go and see you in your home. And, and the dirty little secret is the same patient needs all of those things at different times. So what they really want, what the consumer wants, is to organize around them and not around the modality. And so we need to be able to provide all those to the same patient with the same record, the same team, the same relationship. Post-pandemic, roughly 10% of the volume is at the clinic versus 100% pre-pandemic. How much do you attribute to you having to do this because you had to just, you know, you kept your clinics open during the pandemic. Yes. Credit to you and your business and doing well by doing good or how that saying goes. I mean, that is just truly mind boggling to think about where your business model is today and how much of it was pandemic driven? Uh, because you would think post-pandemic, as we're moving that in that direction, it might snap back, but it's not. Is it a patient preference? What's driven this and what's allowed it to stay where it is? I'm a firm believer, and I think Rahm Emanuel used to say this, but I think he was channeling Machiavelli, is never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> so <laughs> this is actually exactly where we've always wanted to be, is this omni-channel delivery model. And I think the pandemic has sort of allowed us to do it. It's changed a few of the stupid rules, and it's let patients sort of try this. And I think what really changes patients all of a sudden said, okay, I'll try the video. And say, oh, this is actually pretty good. 
Maybe I don't need to come in for everything. And so we're about at 20%, 20 to 25% of these encounters overall are being done in the practice, right? So the rest are not. And we think that's right. So the right question to ask is simply for this particular need, this interaction, what's the best way to do it? And are there are there things that need to be done in person? Absolutely, right? Meeting people for the first time, we think is really important in person. We think there are some clinical encounters where I need to feel your belly and listen to your lungs and, and we should do, and there's some conversations that are important enough that we should do face-to-face, telling you you have cancer, right? And so if it's better done in person, do it in person. But if it can be done as well by video, that's better for everyone, right? It's ridiculous to make people come into an office in 2021 for things that we can just as well be done through a chat or video or telephone. When I think about your business and I think about, you know, the term population health management, first off, I think of population health management as a verb, not a noun. It's an action and it's very much at the center of what you do on a day-to-day basis because the risk is aligned with the clinical outcome. For the majority of the country, that is still fee-for-service. Is this omnichannel dynamic happening? Is this level of engagement happening? Or is it really tied to when you get the care delivery tied with the right financial incentives, these value-based structures that uh, a lot of these magical things can happen? So it is so hard to do the right thing if you're stuck with the wrong payment model. And I think the whole premise of Iora is that what we need to do is align the payment model with what you want to do. By the way, I think value-based care, Ryan, is a red herring. It is a means to an end. It's not an end in of itself. The fact is we use the payment model in order to provide the right consumer model, and then the consumers vote with their feet. In the end, that's the thing that matters, right, is actually changing the consumer experience and actually changing outcomes. Uh, Value-based, the payment model is just necessary, but not sufficient. So what's happening a lot of times in the industry is the institution, the health system might get some version of risk, but the problem is they pay the doctors the same way by RVUs, fee-for-service, regardless of how the health system gets paid. And then they don't change the actual chassis. They don't change the IT system. They don't change the process. They don't change how they pay people. And so, of course, they don't get any change. So I think that's why, you know, one of the things people point out is a lot of these ACOs have been very disappointing in showing outcomes is because they haven't really changed care delivery. If you don't change how actual people get actual care, it's all a waste of time. It's a perfect segue to direct contracting with the federal government. But before we go there, I, I want to talk about the virtualization of healthcare, right? The zoomification of healthcare that was the last year. You know, clearly providers do not have the, you know, the adequate infrastructure yet to be able to manage their practice the way Iora manages its practice, right? Meeting that patient wherever they want to be met, voice, video, mail, async, sync in the practice. Virtual care seems to have advanced fairly quickly away from the episodic and moving more to a longitudinal model. Your entire business is a longitudinal primary care model. Talk a bit about, you know, maybe beyond Iora, as you think about the broader virtual care marketplace, how does that market shift from being episodic, where every time I go for a visit, I'm meeting a new doctor and never meeting the same doctor twice? to something where you can start to have some connective tissue between you know me and my doctor or my doctor's you know colleague so it feels more like I'm going to a medical practice. Yeah, and I think that's the evolution of this, right? So I think obviously the first 
take, you know, version 1.0 of, quote, telemedicine, end quote, where a lot of standalone companies, several of them are big and public, and, uh, and, and it was really tele-urgent care. Right. And and by the way, people call this digital health. In some ways, a video chat with a doctor isn't really digital health. I mean, it is in the minor sense, but but the productivity gains is actually not that great. You're still paying the doc the expensive part of that's a doctor. And yes, there's a little bit of savings of not schlepping to the office, all that, but in general, it's the same. I think digital health really is when we start automating the entire process. And there's a chunk of it that doesn't require a physician to be online, right? And that's the next frontier is actually automating the rest of it, the 80% maybe that doesn't need to be a face-to-face synchronous encounter. Um, So in any case, I think the evolution, and you see it happening, you see Teladoc doing some of this, is where you do try to build some longitudinal relationships. Now, the hard part is everyone who's tried to do this realizes that X percent of the encounters, no matter how good the video link is, et cetera, does require a face-to-face encounter, right? It is what it is. This is healthcare. It requires, you can't suture, you can't give people a shot, you can't feel the belly. There are just a number of things you can't do through the video. It is what it is. And so what, what you really end up having to do is build these hybrid models. Right where and, and by the way, what's that X? So again, our, that X is twenty percent for us. Twenty percent of the encounters need to be done in person, is what it is, and that's what's senior. I bet you, actually, I know there's data from Crossover Health and what Babylon did in, in London that that number for them is about ten percent of the encounters when you're dealing with younger, healthier people fall through. So, so I think we need to start building these integrated models. Right again, stop building around our little needs. Stop build around the consumer's need. What the consumer wants is take care of me. It's okay to start with the video, but if for whatever reason this thing needs to be done in person, figure out a way to do that. You talked about synchronous and asynchronous, and you know we're seeing from a modality perspective, I'm very intrigued with the emergence in the last couple of years of asynchronous chat. It's scalable in terms of, you know, on average, you know, an asynchronous chat versus voice or video, you can do you know, somewhere in the six to eight encounters per hour. One, how much efficiency and value have you gotten out of that? And what is your view on the expansion of asynchronous chat? There's businesses out there like CirrusMD that are scaling at a, at a pretty interesting clip and being able to do it with a very small network of doctors. You don't need thousands of providers. You can have hundreds of doctors or, or less and being able to serve large populations. So what do you think about the, the emergence of asynchronous chat? Yeah, so, so I think the question, the wrong question is what's better, asynchronous or synchronous? It's a stupid question. The right question is, are there a set of uh, needs that are as well or maybe better served by asynchronous? The answer is absolutely right, where we don't need to be on at the same time and we can actually do it. It's much more convenient. You can do it 24 seven. As you said, you can do it much more efficiently. Now, again, this is the key, is that sometimes you could start something off as an asynchronous chat and then you realize, wait a second, this actually can't be solved with an asynchronous chat. This need, we, need to, we need to get on synchronously. And then some of those fall through and say, we need to maybe see you in person, right? So again, I, I think the way we've got to start thinking about these is how we integrate these things together to create a unified consumer experience, not I'm gonna build a chat company. So at the end here, it's an omni-channel offering. You need to have the financial incentives in place. So move to risk. If you're going to risk to be successful, you need omni-channel. And then as you think about virtual, it's that hybrid model of there's gonna be voice, there's video, there's async, and then tying in the practice, which sort of gets back to that 
that longitudinal point that seems to be a, a big focal area for virtual care. Yeah, you know, and by the way, this shouldn't surprise us, Brian. This is about building relationships. And the, you and I will occasionally pick up the phone and call each other. Occasionally, we'll do video chat. Someday, you'll come to Boston and we sit and have a cup of coffee, right? We, it, it's, someday, I'll come to your house, right? So this yeah, is with, a- With Cape Cod, come on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, but it's funny. We do this omni-channel thing in every other part of our life. Right. Why do we not think healthcare ought to be the same? It's a great point. I want to make sure we spend some time on the, the global and professional direct contracting model. It went live last week. There's a lot of long faces out there that some people have been on the outside looking in because the, the administration has hit the pause button. But before we talk about the long faces, let's let's talk about those that are in and what is it? What does it mean to be a, a, a direct contracting entity? And what does it mean to Iora? What is it and what does it mean to the to Medicare overall? So we're really happy and excited to be in the program. What it means is that we can take the thing that we've been doing, we and other people have been doing for years through Medicare Advantage plans, and now apply it to the people who are on original Medicare. So as you know, there are about 60 million roughly seniors in this country. Only about a third, but growing, of those are in Medicare Advantage. And we could serve those people. And all of a sudden now we can go directly to the federal government through CMMI and take essentially full risk on the seniors who are the 40 million seniors in original Medicare. So this is transformational. For, obviously, for our business, it's transformational. I think what's transfer the federal government is there's been a long progression at CMS, largely through CMMI, the Innovation Center, to say we need to move from this fee-for-service payment model to more integrated risk models for providers, right? Accountability models. They started, uh, you know, and what they've got now is a set of steps. There's the MSSP, you know, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which sort of fee-for-service with a crew-up. There's, um, you know, next-gen. And this is the next step in the progression, right? So the reality, I think, is that medical groups are at different stages of their evolution of how much they can take on risk, right? Can they take on a little bit of bonuses? Can it take a little bit of up and downside? Or can they take full global risk like we do? And I think what's really exciting is this puts a stake in the ground at the high end of that scale. Right. So they used to be that there were just these beginner programs, which are great and slightly more advanced. So this is sort of the very advanced program for groups that feel like they can take full responsibility for total cost of care. And I think what we see is maybe not surprisingly, uh, people like us can show the biggest impact because we actually change things the most. So I think this is good for the beneficiaries. It's good for Medicare. It's obviously good for us. There's a lot of talk out there around vertical integration at the payer level. Right, so the payers are aggregating providers at the community level. With the success of this program and coming from a global cap provider, today you are in a Medicare Advantage business model inside a primary care delivery, uh, delivery mechanism. With the success of this program, you know, what does this mean you know, sort of longer term, right? You're, you're actually enrolling the members, you're acquiring the members, and you're managing all, all of the risk. What part of Medicare Advantage will you not be doing if this program is successful and you guys, you know, the 53 folks that are in here in phase one, pull this off and show that this works? What does that mean in terms of the broader Medicare Advantage market? So I think the way that Medicare works, so again, if you're a direct contract, if you're a beneficiary, you still have subject all the Medicare rules. You still are sub, you're still responsible for 20% of the costs, et cetera. Um, it is still, if you're a consumer, a better deal to go into Medicare Advantage by far. 
in general, unless your you know a former employer is paying your mid-sup, you are better off financially going into a Medicare Advantage plan, and there are plenty of them out there. A number of people, two-thirds of Americans, for whatever reason, choose not to do so, right? And we can argue why that is. Our attitude is we ought to give people choice. And I think that's what's great about the Medicare program is you can choose to go into MA and we will work with you there. If you choose not to go into MA, we can work with you over here, right? So I think that's great. Remember, Medicare is different than an employer thing. When this is an individual making the decision. This is not an HR director trying to make a decision for all thousand of their workers. In MA, every individual makes a decision for themselves. The platform to do that has been Medicare Advantage plans. This creates an alternative platform, which is a primary care group like us, right? And I think the key is that well, well-financed, well-organized primary care groups like us have shown that we can actually handle this. We can handle full risk. Uh, and so I think it creates sort of another platform for people to actually take care of patients, which I think is really interesting. You're no stranger to being able to go out and raise capital. There is a tremendous amount of capital available in the market. I can't think of a sector in healthcare other than biotech that is getting the, the focus and the capital. Just a couple staggering statistics. In, in the first quarter of this year, $8.4 billion of capital was raised, and that's up from $3.8 last year. And 5.8, nearly 6 billion of that 8.4 were in capital raises north of 100 million, where there was 1.7 billion raised a year ago. So we've just, we've never seen a market like this before. We've got many, many companies running to the public markets. The SPAC market is, is very, very hot. And, you know, around our last conversation, there's a lot of people making big bets on the GBTC model and, and being there and hoping that this opens up for round two and three and four. What are you seeing from your vantage point across the market and, and what excites you beyond the investment you've made in, in your own business? I started doing this almost 20 years ago, Ryan. And when I started building a new primary care business 20 years ago, people thought we were crazy. No one gave a wait about primary care. And we we obviously couldn't raise any money. We were getting SBA loans, right? Taking second mortgages on the houses because no one was funding it. So it's sort of remarkable to see how the industry is, has evolved, right? And now that people are realizing the potential return. So that's really exciting. I think one of the issues is this is a huge opportunity. I actually think that um, the opportunity to take this three and a half trillion dollar healthcare industry we have and rationalize it, uh, you know, we all know that 30% of what we're doing is waste. That's a trillion dollar a year opportunity. It's just bigger than the internet, bigger than Google, bigger than Facebook. And I think uh, there's a huge opportunity. That said, this is going to take a while. And what I worry a little about sort of public companies, particular quarterly appetite of showing returns and, and the short-term thinking that we've built into these annual reports and the like. And I think there's a huge opportunity in the space, but it may take a while. I've been doing this for 17 years. And so we need to make sure, I think, from a public policy point of view, that this capital uh, is going to have the patience it needs in order to let these models work out, right? It takes a while and we need that patience. I think the patience is a great point. You know, we've seen, you know, a lot of, I won't call them newcomers, but folks that have been just extraordinarily aggressive 
you know, Tiger Global, General Catalyst have, have really just emerged as, as leaders deploying, you know, uh, billions of dollars uh, into the space, taking that long view of uh, not trying to, you know, flip the business in, uh, you know, in, in the coming year. And, and funds like Oak, just in terms of how fast the capital is getting deployed, you know, they raised an $800 million fund in August of 19. They've deployed it and raised a $1.4 billion round since then in the first quarter, and they're already you know, well underway. I mean, so it's just a, a truly extraordinary. If you're placing some bets beyond global cap and primary care and, and risk, what are some areas that you're really excited about? So I think the health technology space is still ripe for disruption. You know, I think the no offense, but the Epics and the Cerners and the EHRs of the world are built for the old world. And someone's going to figure out how we built the technology platform, you know, for the new world. Like people like us and virtually all of us have been building it ourselves. It's a little ridiculous that each of these little companies is trying to build their own technology platform. Uh, we do it because we have to and it actually works. But at some point to get this to scale, we need to have sort of the next version of Epic that actually powers value-based care and not sort of optimize it on end to enforce. I, I would be bullish on that. I think that this new world of you know digital health broadly, like we need to be able to get sensors from people's homes. We need to be able to engage people outside the office. Well, people like us don't need to build it. And we need to have you know people doing that. And finally, I think precision medicine, you know, in broadly, that the way we do healthcare now, which is where we're sort of randomly guessing when we there's a trial that 51% of the people benefit from this drug. So we give it to everyone. Ridiculous, right? We need to know for this patient, what's the interval to do their mammograms? What drug will, is the best anticoagulant for them? And I think as we do that, this will be obviously much better for patients and also much more efficient. And that's, you know, and, and this is genomics, proteomics, and the whole omics bit. It's uh, data, it's, uh, you know, putting it in workflow. I think that's the next frontier. It's truly extraordinary, the blurring of the lines, right? I mean, I go out and talk to med tech companies and they don't want to talk yes. about devices, they want to talk <laughs> about data. You go see biotech companies, yeah. they want to talk about digital therapeutics, like the FDA approving apps. Yep. Amazing times we're living in and I think we're, we're still in the early innings. Rashika, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I can't wait to see you before the fall sometime this summer in Boston, but uh, we will see you out in Cape Cod at our annual summit at the Chatham Bars Inn in, in late September. Sounds great. Thank you, Ryan. Okay. Thanks, Rashika. Take care. Thank you for listening to PJ Solomon Presents. For more information, please visit us at pjsolomon.com. Thank you.